And we'll go through, tonight we'll go through five Psalms. I'm enjoying the study myself as I see the practicality of the Psalms lived out in David's life and the other psalmists. And I can relate so much to a lot of the things that he, that he speaks of, that he writes of here. And uh, I pray that you, you guys will be able to, uh, to see that and apply that to, to your lives. So if you're all there in Psalm 11, I'll read through and then we'll study. In verse 1, To the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready the arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His, eyelid, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, His soul hates. Upon the wicked He will rain coals, Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness, and His countenance beholds the upright. Psalm 11. It's a psalm of two voices. And it's like two voices in our heads, or those two little things on our shoulders. One voice urges flight. One voice is urging us to flee our circumstances. And the other voice urges us to faith. Now, Pastor Luis used to tell me that we have three voices in our heads at all times. One is God, one is us, and one is Satan. And I believe that that's true. God's voice, though, will direct us towards faith. And that's the one that we need to pay attention to. Our own voice will many times direct us to flee our circumstances, to run away. Satan's voice will probably also direct us to flee our circumstances, but then to curse God for the trial that we're in. One voice leads us toward doubt. And because of the situation that we're in, we can become fearful if we're listening to any other voice but God's. So in verse 1, the beginning of verse 1, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, in the Lord I put my trust. I love how David starts off here really in the positive. He affirms his faith in God. God is our refuge. And this is where we always need to start. And I think... That's a good place to even start our daily prayer, is just to say, God, I put my trust in you for this day. And then whatever happens after that, we're going to see how this psalm sort of takes David up here from his trust, down into the depths of doubt, and then through his journey, and then eventually back towards uh, just understanding that, God's, that God is righteous and that He can trust in Him. But it's like a daily walk. It's like, it's like what we go through all the time. You know, we start off really well. 
And I, and I think that's a good place to start. Put our trust in the Lord. Know who we should be putting our faith in before we even step a foot out of our, of our bed for the day. And then in the second part of that verse, the other voice starts to talk. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to the mountain? So David now questions that voice. He's like having a conversation with this other voice. How can you say to me, flee? He's saying to that voice. I just said I was going to put my trust in the Lord, and yet this other voice now is coming into my head, telling me to flee my circumstances, telling me to run away from those things. God ordains the things in our lives, whether we like them or not. They are for our good. God prepares those things in our lives. He allows even trials, circumstances that we may not like, and He does it for a reason. And yet that other voice will tell us to flee from those things. It's a, it's a voice of doubt. It's a voice of panic and distrust. In the midst of a great trial, it's a voice that appeals to our flesh. Our flesh doesn't want to be burdened by these, these things. Our flesh doesn't want to undergo the great trial that we may be under. Our flesh will tell us to run. Our flesh will tell us to flee. So that voice is another voice that we, we, need, to, we need to suppress. And then in verse 2, For look, the wicked bend their bow. Now he's starting to see the trial. He's starting to envision exactly what's going on in his life. The wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, this voice is starting to be a voice of doubt. A doubt in God's sovereignty over his life. And it's starting to, it's starting to describe those things, those trials that may come into our life. He speaks of the destruction of the foundations. If the society breaks down around us, sometimes we'll question, well, what can we do? What can one person do? But really, if we think about it, us plus God is a majority. Because with God, all things are possible. So one person, if they believe and put their faith and trust in God, can do all things. Verse 4, it says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. Now we see this other voice beginning to take over, the voice of faith. As David goes through this trial that he's going through, as David starts to see that God is on his throne, this other voice takes over. David answers the doubters with faith. Sometimes we think God's gone on vacation when we undergo through, when we undergo difficulties and trials in our life. But he's still on his throne. He hasn't left. He's sovereign over all the affairs of the earth. And his eyes are open. He sees us. He sees what we're going through. And then he tests our hearts. 
And I love this because God doesn't test us so that he finds out where our hearts are at because he knows our hearts. He tests us so that we can see where our hearts are at. God tests us so that in the midst of a trial, we can see if we're putting our faith in him or not. We need to see that. And in the uh, second half of verse, verse 5, But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. See, now David can rightfully say that God hates the wicked. God hates the wicked. And that he will execute perfect judgment. And that they won't be able to do anything about it. So as David moved from faith to doubt, back to faith again, we can see as we go through trial, as we go through circumstances in our life, we may have those times that we're fully trusting in God. And then we may have those times when we're, we're succumbing to those other voices, the voice of doubt. And we need to get through that. We need to, we need to get past that. And we need to focus on God. Knowing that whatever's going on in our lives, whatever, if, we're, if there are people coming against us and we know that they're, that they're not godly people, that God will execute judgment. We don't have to do that. We don't have to exact revenge on our enemies. And then in verse 7, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. And His countenance beholds the upright. See, not only is the Lord righteous, but He loves righteousness. And He loves those who are righteous because of Him. In 1 John 2.29, it says, If you know that He, God, is righteous, you know that everyone who practice, practices righteousness is born of God. See, we have to understand that if we follow Jesus, the righteous, that we will also be righteous in God's eyes. And the Lord loves righteousness, and He loves those who practice righteousness. So it's a walk. Our righteousness is exhibited, is demonstrated by how we walk. So David moves in this psalm from affirmation and trust in the Lord to hearing the voices of the doubtful, then back to full faith in the Lord's righteousness. And we can apply it to our own lives. Our confidence may go up and down. Our trust in the Lord may go up and down. And it may go up and down because of our circumstances. But I think our prayer needs to be that we are less moved by those things. And that we, more, we trust in God more. Because He is righteous. Now to Psalm 12. To the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, With our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own. 
Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety in which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep him, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Psalm 12 speaks of the contrast between God and the wicked. The wicked speak hurtful words, while God speaks healing words. The wicked seek to destroy, while God desires to build up and strengthen. Similar to Psalm 11, there are different sources of speech that we can listen to. And Psalm 12 gives, gives an even greater explanation as to the contrast between them. I like this because it's sort of a theme that we'll see in a few of the Psalms tonight. That contrast between the righteousness in God, of God and the wickedness of men. The contrast between putting our trust and faith in someone who's solid and reliable and trustworthy and putting our trust and faith in either ourselves or someone else who may stumble. So that contrast. In verse 1, to the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. This psalm begins with a cry of desperation. Sometimes that's all our prayer needs to be. Just help, Lord. Help. Just a cry of desperation. And I think we can relate to a world that's removed God more and more out of the culture. You know, David says here, the godly man ceases. The faithful disappear from among the sons of men. Sometimes we may look out at this world and we may say, where are the godly people? We may look at the government and we may say, where are those who have their faith and trust in Jesus? We may look at our co-workers or even some family members and say, is there anyone godly? And then if we really look hard enough, we may look in our own hearts and we may start to wonder, are we demonstrating, are we walking in a way that would accurately represent Jesus? So it's hard to see sometimes. So psalm, the psalm begins with a cry of desperation. David writes as if he's the last righteous one in a world that's gone to hell in a handbasket. And sometimes we may feel like we're the only ones. The only ones who believe in God. So what does he do? He takes it to the Lord in prayer. The simple prayer, a simple cry. Help, Lord. Help. And there comes a time, I think, where we can admit that there's nothing more that we can do. That's it. We have to leave it with God and allow Him to just do the work. So now again, the contrast of the wicked with the godly. We, we see here the wicked described in verse 2. They speak idly 
Everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. So three characteristics of the speech of the wicked. The first one, idle conversation. And this Hebrew word for idly is shav. It means emptiness, vanity, falsehood, nothingness, emptiness of speech. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that a lot of times in conversations with people, the conversation is about really nothing. It's, it's not of any substance. It's not of any importance. It's, it may not be falsehood or lying, but it's vanity. It has no real, it has no real substance behind it. Idle conversation, I think, becomes an outlet for people so that they can avoid the serious discussions of God and sin and their own eternity. I think people don't really want to talk about those serious things. So most conversation that we'll have with people in this world are real, is really idle conversation. And, and in this psalm, David considers that the speech of the wicked. Because it really has no... It, it doesn't relate to God in any way. The second characteristic of the speech of the wicked is flattering lips. And in the Hebrew, the word flattering is chelpwa. It means a smooth part. Smoothness. Flattery. We can, we can think of that as, as smooth words. Just flattery. It's a form of lying, flattery, really. Because true expressions of love don't include vain flattery. It's like the old saying that flattery will get you nowhere. It conveys the sense that showing someone that you love them is better than saying it with words. And then the third form of uh, wicked speech that he speaks of here is a double heart. And that's, that's a Hebrew phrase. It speaks of the inner man, the will, the mind, the heart. The understanding which is inconsistent in its character. Inconsistent. People that speak things that are inconsistent with who they really are. And we never want to be that. We never want to be a hypocrite. We, may, we never want to speak things that are not really consistent with our character. Our life should be consistent and reliable, not contradictory and hypocritical. Then in verse 3, he says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things. A plea now David makes for God to judge those who speak untruths or who are arrogant with their speech. And then verse 4, Who have said, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Now the wicked deny God's lordship and sovereignty over their lives. They arrogantly profess that they rule their lives. And God has no say. And I know that we, we see people who deny God's sovereignty in their lives. And they speak arrogantly. They speak as if they're in charge. They're the boss. 
for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy. Now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Now the other side. On the other hand, God defends the oppressed. And he secures the less fortunate in this world. So we see the contrast of the proud and the arrogant and how they treat the downtrodden as opposed to the way God treats the oppressed. Unlike the words of the wicked, which are idle, flattering, and inconsistency, verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, pure. Like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when violence is exalted among the sons of men. So we see the contrast. Wicked, the wicked's words are idle, flattering, and inconsistent. The Lord's words are pure. And that word pure means morally and ethically clean. Like precious metals refined in a fire. They come out pure. And the refining process brings that, those impurities to the surface and they're taken away. And what's left is the pure metal. God's words are like refined silver. And seven represents completion or perfection. God's word is perfect. It lacks nothing. And then we see the truth of verse 8 where the wicked prowl on every side and it reveals the blessings of verse 7, that the Lord will keep the righteous, preserve them from the wicked, from the vile in this world. Psalm 13. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalm 13 is a lament turned to confidence, turned to joy. Again, we see this journey that David takes us through a few verses. From a lament, a questioning, a doubting of God. Through to confidence in God and then rejoicing in his promises. In verse 1, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Three how longs. I'm sure we've all said it. How long, How long this, for this trial that I'm going through? How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? The first how long, 
expresses our mistaken belief that God is absent, that God does not see what we're going through, that He's forgotten us. The Word says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Those are the promises of the Lord that we need to have in our minds and in our hearts when we're starting to doubt. How long, O Lord? And then the second how long? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? This how long expresses the mistake of looking to ourselves and to our own resources to deal with our enemies and our troubles. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, David says. That's not where our counsel needs to be. Our counsel needs to be with God, with God's Word, with God's people in prayer. So this second how long looks to ourselves for counsel. And then the third how long, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? It seems sometimes as though it's the trial is just going on forever. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? How long will our... You could substitute the word, any, any of these words for the word enemy. How long will our trial, how long will our sickness, how long will our financial troubles... And as I prayed before, how long will our relational situations go on? See, the third how long mistakenly focuses on our problems. It focuses on our troubles. And we tend to do that. We tend to look to our troubles, look to our trials, and focus on them. And then question God and His sovereignty. In verse 3 and 4, David writes, Consider and hear me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy says, I have prevailed against him, lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. Now we start to see again this journey that David takes. He moves from focusing on his problems to focusing on God. His prayer is for God to pay attention to him and to hear him. And I love the Hebrew word for hear. It's anah. And this indicates not only hearing, but answering. The actual definition is to answer, to respond, to testify, to speak. And I love that. David is praying not just for God to hear him, but to answer him. And I love that because that should be our prayer. God, hear me. But in praying that God hear me, our prayer is God answer. God respond. Now we don't know most times what that response is going to be. But we know He will respond. He will answer. Our prayer, like David's prayer, can be for protection and for victory against our enemies. And again, you can substitute any trial that you're going through in the place of that word enemy. And when our enemies are victorious, 
they can easily rejoice against God. When our trials get the best of us, when our circumstances overwhelm us, that doesn't shed a good light on the Lord in our lives. I think a lot of people see how strong a Christian we are when we are going through a trial. When they see how we respond in the midst of troubles. See, if our trials went over, someone outside, an unbeliever, may say, well, God must not be with him. He doesn't have much faith. He's succumbing to that trial just like I would, or even worse. But when we focus on God, when, when we focus on the solution to our troubles, it shines a great light on who God is in our lives to others. And in verse 5, David writes, But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, we have the three how longs at the beginning of the psalm. We have the three positive responses to those questions. We have trust, we have rejoicing, and we have singing. David moves from distrust to trust. He moves from despair to rejoicing. He moves from crying out to the Lord to singing God's praises. Even as he undergoes a trial. He rejoices in the salvation of God. That word salvation is Yeshua. Salvation, deliverance, prosperity, and not monetary. Not monetary prosperity, but prosperity in our spirit, in our soul. And that's, and that's when he starts to worship the Lord. And I love that we have songs that we can sing to the Lord. We can fulfill these three steps in response to those questions. It's an outlet. Worship is an outlet for our rejoicing. And it speaks of God fully and completely loving us, dealing bountifully with us. And this psalm, I love what this psalm does. It doesn't really, it shows us really how prayer works and what prayer does. See, prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes our hearts. Prayer changes our perspective. As we cry out to the Lord, as, he, we, as we pray for God to hear us and answer us in the midst of what we're going through, our hearts start to change. Our perspective starts to starts to change. Psalm 14. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if they are, there are any who understand and seek God. They have all turned aside. They have, all, they have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? 
who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. This psalm, different from the others, doesn't take us through a journey like the others did. This takes us through the depravity of man. Specifically, those who deny God and generally to all of mankind who are indicted because of sin, which is common to all men. And then it brings us to the triumph of God over the ungodly. So in verse 1, the first part of verse 1, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We've been hearing a lot about Christopher Hitchens lately, the, uh, the famous atheist who passed away just before Christmas. And um, I've been reading up on some of the some of the comments about his life, and there were, he was well-respected in, uh, in a lot of circles. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who's another famous atheist, uh, wrote a farewell letter to Christopher Hitchens. Not that I think he could hear it, or he would see it. And the last part of his farewell letter was this, farewell great voice, Great voice of reason, of humanity, of humor. Great voice against Kant, which is false piety, which I guess is us. Against hypocrisy, which is probably, again, Christians. Against obscurantism, which I had to look up, which is deliberate vagueness, which probably is, again, against Christians. And pretension. And against all tyrants, including God. You know, it's weird. They, they have so much to say about a God they don't believe in. Against false piety, hypocrisy. You know, those who don't believe in God look at us and they, look, they see hypocrites. They look at us and they see vagueness. Well, maybe we can't explain in a scientific way the way they want to to understand whether God exists or not, so they consider it deliberate vagueness and pretension. This speaks this psalm speaks to them. And it and it doesn't mince any words. It says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. The second part of verse 1, they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now, this part of the psalm is speaking not specifically of an atheist, but generally among about all men universally, about mankind. How do I know that? 
Well, Psalm 53 is really, it speaks the exact same words as this psalm does. But in Romans 3, verses 10 and 12, Paul writes, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. See, the psalm is speaking of man, all of mankind. This is God's appraisal of the human race. In our natural state, we tend toward evil, not toward goodness. And it's only by God's grace that we are able to even have a relationship with Him. And I think it's something that we need to always recognize. Not that we always have to be down on ourselves, but recognize our natural state. Apart from a relationship with God, apart from the indwelling and leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are described here. We turn aside from God. We become corrupt. We don't look to God. In verse 4, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? They, there they are in great fear. A shift now from the iniquity of man to the triumph of God is starting to, starting to be seen here. Calling on the Lord and showing Him reverence is the difference between the wicked and the righteous. The wicked don't call on the Lord. The, the wicked don't revere God. The righteous do. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is His refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord brings back the captivity of His people. Let Jacob re rejoice and Israel be glad. See, God is pleased to dwell with those who trust Him. He will be our salvation. He will be our refuge. It says in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people. That's believers. That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That's us. We've been called out of the darkness of this world. As believers in Jesus, we've been called into the marvelous light of God. We need to always be mindful of that. Thank Him for that. And then in Psalm 15, a Psalm of David, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fear the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out, any, put out his money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent, he who does these things shall never be moved. Unlike Psalm 14, which focuses on the way of the wicked, Psalm 15 focuses on the way of the righteous. It begins with two questions, and then David answered those questions by describing the characteristics of the righteous. And I think for us, the application is, we would be wise to follow the counsel of this psalm, 
by praying that God will lead us into the way of righteousness as we uh, as we aspire to put these characteristics on ourselves because it's a great description of of the way of the righteous a psalm of David Lord who may abide in your tabernacle who may dwell in your holy hill now David is asking who but he's not asking who by name he's asking who by character what does a believer look like what is someone who trusts and believes in God what does his character look like those who call themselves Christians should exhibit certain qualities they should be different they should be set apart from those in the world and this question it says who may abide in your tabernacle who may dwell in your holy hill this question supposes that it's a great privilege to dwell with God it is a great privilege in Matthew Henry's commentary on this psalm he says it doesn't come through birth or blood but according to men's hearts and lives that's who dwells with God and I love this also because it addresses the question to God himself God alone has the answers for eternal life God alone will be able to show us who will dwell in his tabernacle who will dwell in his holy hill not us in Proverbs 4 14 it says there's a way that seems right to man but its end is the way of death you see if we look to ourselves to find out what a righteous person looks like we'll be off target but we need to look to God now the two questions that he asks who may abide in your tabernacle and who may dwell in your holy hill they have slightly different focal points the tabernacle represents God's dwelling place on earth where believers meet and worship this building any local church can be represented by this tabernacle the holy hill spoken of in verse 1 represents the glory of heaven where God dwells with his people for all eternity and for us it's a privilege to be part of both it's a privilege to be part of a local body of believers people who love one another people who lift one another up in prayer people who care for one another people who reach out to the community it's a privilege to be part of that it's a privilege to be a part of eternity thinking about being together with one another worshiping God praising God forever it's a privilege and David indicates here that only those with a godly character will receive that privilege will partake of those things so he goes on to describe what that character looks like he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart so three things there someone who is genuine in their walk with the Lord someone who walks the walk but not only does he walk the walk he works the works see godliness is demonstrated by godly works it says in James 2 
But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect? So a godly person, someone with godly character, walks the walk and works the works. They do those things. that bring God to glory. He who dwells with God also talks the talk. Sincerity of speech is the sign of a true believer. In Proverbs 19 and in many other places in the Bible, it speaks about sincerity of speech. In Proverbs 19, it says, A false witness will not go unpunished. He who speaks lies shall perish. So he's speaking there about walking the walk, working the works, and talking the talk. Part of a, all part of a godly character. In verse 3, he who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up reproach against his friend. The one who dwells with God does not speak evil against anyone, or to anyone, about someone. And we can get caught up in this fairly easily, unfortunately. We need to not only turn away from those conversations, but put an end to them. If someone is starting to backbite, if someone is starting to gossip, if, start, if someone is coming to us with something against someone else, we need to stop it. Let it not become part of our just normal conversation which sometimes can tend to happen. So you put an end to it before it starts, or if it's brought to our ears, you put an end to it as soon as we can. In whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he who honors, but he honors those who fear the Lord, verse 4. We must agree with God. We reject the one who rejects God, and we honor the one who honors God. So we agree with God in those things. We see people, we can, we can judge in a way that God judges. We see the godly character of someone. We reject those who reject God. We reject, we reject those who reject godly character. And we honor those who honor God. He who does not, um, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. This, is, this speaks of the characteristic of of giving an oath, and then even if an oath brings some unforeseen damage to our own lives, let's say we make an oath and we don't realize that there are unintended consequences of that oath, we still need to keep our oath. We need to be sincere in our words. So if he swears to his own hurt, he doesn't change, doesn't go back on his oath. Verse 5, he who does not put out money at usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. This indicates someone who lends money at an unfair interest rate. Now, I don't have any money to lend you, so don't come to me. I I, don't worry, I won't charge you a high interest rate because I have nothing to lend. But, you know, I'm sure at that time, and, and you know, there are times now that people take advantage of others, you know, when they're down on their luck. And that's that's something that that's not 
characteristic of the righteous, it's characteristic of the wicked. He does not take a bribe against the innocent. Taking a bribe against the innocent is someone in a, in a high position of power, and even in public office, who knowingly does something to prejudice a case against an innocent person for personal gain. You know, and we see that often, um, especially in, in government and, um, and people that are in high, powerful positions. We see that. But God says, and David writes here in the end of verse 5, He who does these things shall never be moved. He who has the characteristic of the righteous shall not be moved. In light of all the descriptions of a righteous person, we receive the promise of abiding forever in God's presence, of dwelling with Him, not only in this life, but in the life to come of being stable, never being moved, being stable in all our ways. And as part of this greater church family, not being moved because we're built upon the rock which doesn't move, which is Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We know that as we walk in godly character, as we represent Christ in our daily goings here and there in our places of business, in our schools, in our families, as we represent Jesus more and more, that we will become stable in all of our ways and it will represent Jesus well. So I pray that the uh, Psalms tonight, I know that for me that they were very practical in their application and I know that we can go back and look at them and just see those things that God speaks of and that David writes about that we can just apply to our lives. So we'll, we'll just close in prayer and uh, pray that God um, helps us just apply those things. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us tonight.